We're just looking at these three little verses that I just read for you, 55, 56, and 57 of John chapter 11, and they don't seem to contain much in them, at least at first glance. They seem sort of like just, I don't mean to be irreverent, but almost like throwaway verses at the end, just kind of giving you a little bit of contextual detail, very incidental, very peripheral, but it's worthwhile to slow down here and zoom out because what John is doing is, is transitioning. We've just finished studying the very last act of Jesus, and we're going now into a very different section of the book. The way the book reads changes at this point, and this is kind of the fulcrum point of the book. So up until now, it's been the signs of Jesus, the... Um, actions of Jesus and from here on out is is a lot of teaching and also leading up to this point has been the whole ministry of Jesus and from here on out it's like the final week of Jesus so even though there are many more chapters in John John is doing something very different from here on out than he's done in the first half of the book so we're going to zoom out and, and see the big picture of John's gospel and where this fits in. And as we do, we'll notice another brush stroke in the large portrait of redemptive history that John paints for us. Our study of these three verses this morning will be comprised of four main considerations, which are not grammatically correct, I know but they're easier to remember this way than if I stated them otherwise. Here are the four. When Jesus is in the story, what Jesus is in the story, where Jesus therefore will be in the story, and for whom Jesus is in the story. So that's what we're doing this morning. So with that in mind, let's jump right in to the first point, which is when Jesus is in the story. And the first phrase, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, is intended by John at the very most basic level, simply to mark where we are in the progression of John's retelling of Jesus' life and ministry. As D.A. Carson notes, most likely the Passover mentioned here is the third and last for the period of Jesus' ministry which therefore establishes that his public ministry ran a little over two years. If the first Passover was in A.D. 28, 46 years after the date Herod the Great began rebuilding the temple, as John 2.20 seems to indicate it was, then the year of Jesus' death and resurrection is A.D. 30. Admittedly, there is some debate about the exact chronology of the years of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But to me, Carson's view sounds the most plausible, and so I share it with you. However, the main, the exact dates carry little, if any, theological weight. The main fact is that Jesus did live, die, and rise for us and for our salvation. And whether his death and resurrection happened in A.D. 30, or A.D. 33, or somewhere in between those dates, or somewhere outside of those dates, is uh, less important, certainly less relevant. But most likely, as Carson says, we are now, in John 11, in A.D. 30, 
And this is the third and last Passover in Jesus' earthly life and ministry. In any case, whether it's AD 30 or not, John certainly intends us to understand that this is, for sure, the last Passover of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Whether it's the third one or the fourth one, whether it's AD 30, whether it's AD 33, it's certainly the last one. This is it. This is clear simply from reading what follows in John's Gospel. So, the last Passover of Jesus' life, at which point he's going to be crucified, is imminent. That's when Jesus is in the story. We see that in verse 55. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Let's consider now what Jesus is in the story. And I would remind you that John portrays Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 and verse 29. John intends for us to see Jesus as a Lamb. It becomes clear that John wants us to see Jesus as the Passover Lamb. The fact that Jesus is crucified during the Passover feast is not an accident. It's not just that it so happened to be that Jesus was crucified at the Passover, but rather Jesus is crucified at the Passover as a lamb, as the fulfillment of the typology of the Old Testament. Let's look back at Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We see here 
that God was going to pass through the land of Egypt. That's in verse 12 that I just read of Exodus chapter 12. God is going to pass through the land of Egypt, including Goshen, where the Israelites were, where they lived. And God was going to kill the firstborn in each house. This was the tenth and final plague. But as God passed through the land, he would pass over, and that's in verse 13 that I just read, Exodus 12, 13. As God passed through the land, he would pass over the houses with the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts. What was the function of the Passover lamb then? It was to die essentially in the place of the firstborn sons of Israel. The function of the Passover lamb was to die as a substitute. As the Passover event happened, which was a judgment upon Pharaoh, and as this passage says, on all the gods of Egypt, it was a decisive victory blow. Yahweh against the gods of Egypt. Yahweh against Pharaoh who exalted himself to go toe-to-toe with Yahweh. It was Yahweh's decisive victory blow. A judgment upon Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and everyone that lined themselves up on Pharaoh's team, on the team of the gods of Egypt against Yahweh. It was a judgment against them. But even as God brought that judgment... The Israelites needed a substitute to die for them. In order that God could justly spare them the same judgment. Because they deserved the judgment just as much as Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt did. You see, God didn't bring the Israelites up out of Egypt because they were a more righteous people. God didn't rescue them because they were a godly bunch. They were, as God calls them later on, a crooked and perverse generation. They were a stubborn people, a rebellious people. We have been seeing this in the Exodus narrative that we've been studying through on Sunday nights. As they make their way from Egypt to Mount Sinai, they're grumbling, 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 Refusing to trust, refusing to believe, worrying, rebelling, wanting to turn back. You see, they deserved to be judged just as much as the Egyptians deserved to be judged. And so if God was to judge, justly spare the Israelites, they needed a substitute to die in their place. And so God provides the Passover lamb to be a substitute for the people of Israel so that as he visits his judgment upon the whole land of Egypt, Egypt proper and Goshen, where the Israelites were, he may justly spare the Israelites because of the blood of the Passover lamb. That event which was the first Passover, was a real event in itself, but it was also what is called a type. 
A type is a picture or a, a foreshadowing of something else which will come later. And so you have in the Old Testament, say, the, the office of king. And the Old Testament kings of Israel are types of the ultimate king who will come. And there is a uh, office of the priest and all of the priests are types of the ultimate priest who will come and so forth. What you also see in the Old Testament is lambs, which are types of the ultimate lamb who will come. The Passover lamb is a type of the ultimate lamb who will come. And the thing that comes later, the ultimate king, the ultimate priest, the ultimate lamb, is called in theological terms the antitype. So there's the type which foreshadows or signals something else, and that something else is called the antitype. So the Passover lamb, we would say in theological terms then, is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the antitype. The Passover is typological or typological of the crucifixion of Jesus. The slaughtering of Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, is the antitype to which that Old Testament type pointed. Jesus is to be a Passover lamb. He is to die as a substitute for those who wish to escape God's coming judgment. Bear this concept in mind. We've seen when Jesus is in the story. It's now the last week of his life. And we've seen now what Jesus is in the story. The Passover lamb. Let's move on now to where Jesus will therefore be in the story. In verse 56, the people wonder where Jesus will be during the Passover. These people have gathered themselves in Jerusalem for ceremonial purification rites, getting ready for the Passover itself. And as they are gathered there, they are looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They're wondering, will Jesus be here for the Passover? Will he not? It's public knowledge by now that the powers that be are out to get Jesus. Jesus and his disciples knew that already, even at the beginning of chapter 11, remember? Because at the end of chapter 10, they were trying to stone Jesus and trying to arrest Jesus, and Jesus went away. Then when the message came to him that Lazarus was sick, his disciples were like, wait a second, we don't want to go back close to Jerusalem because they were just trying to kill you. So they knew that already, but now it's public knowledge. Because look at verse 57. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So some kind of public proclamation has gone out, the way that we see sometimes in the nation news. You know, so-and-so is wanted for a crime. Just a reminder, if you are harboring somebody who is wanted, you are also guilty of a crime. Something like this has gone out in Jerusalem. If you know where Jesus is, it's your responsibility to let us know where he is. Otherwise, you yourself will fall under our displeasure. So, because of this, the people are wondering, will Jesus be here 
in Jerusalem for the Passover, or will he not? Surely he won't come up to the feast when he's wanted, will he? But Jesus tends to be at the major feasts. We remember at the last feast, Jesus stood up publicly, said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come. Jesus has been present at the previous feasts, and so there's also this expectation, well, maybe he will come. And so the people are wondering, will Jesus be in Jerusalem, or will Jesus not be in Jerusalem? In Luke 13, 33, Jesus indicates that he does intend to die in Jerusalem. Let me read that for you. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus indicates that he intends to die in Jerusalem. After all, it would only be fitting since that's how history has gone. In the very next verse, we we read Jesus lamenting, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to it. More than just that it would be sort of fitting and that it would be in keeping with the trajectory of redemptive history for Jesus to die in Jerusalem. It has actually been prophesied that Jerusalem is the place where the Messiah is to do his work. It has been prophesied that Jerusalem is where God will work salvation for his people. So now let's put two and two together. The Passover of the Jews is at hand, and Jesus is the Passover lamb. Therefore, where will Jesus be? In Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the Passover lamb will be slain. Listen as I read from Isaiah chapter 24, first of all and verse 23, which simply sets the context for what I'm about to read from 25. Listen. The Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. The end of Isaiah 24. Okay, now listen as I read from Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, what mountain? What did we read at the end of Isaiah 24? Mount Zion, Jerusalem. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain. Which mountain? Mount Zion. Jerusalem, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Where will God swallow up death forever? On Mount Zion, Jerusalem. 
And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We sing sometimes, Who has felt the nails upon his hands? Bearing all the guilt of sinful men? Behold our God. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Behold our God. It is in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, that God will appear to save, that God will appear to swallow up death forever. When Jesus is in the story, the Passover is imminent. What Jesus is in the story? Jesus is the Passover lamb. Where Jesus will therefore be in the story, the people need not wonder. If Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if Jesus is the Messiah, then where will Jesus be at this, the final Passover, that day destined for God to swallow up death forever, that day destined for God to work salvation for His people? Where will the Passover Lamb be? I must go on my way to Jerusalem. I must go on my way to Jerusalem. This is what Jesus says in John, or pardon me, in Luke 13, 33. So we've seen when Jesus is in the story. We've seen what Jesus is in the story. We've seen where Jesus will therefore be in the story. Let's consider now and lastly, for whom is Jesus in the story? Now, if the slaughtering of this anti-typical Passover lamb, this ultimate Passover lamb. If this is an anti-type that is signified by the type, that original first Passover story, when Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go, and God brought judgment then upon the enemies of God's people and spared them by the death of a substitute. It raises the question, or ought to raise the question in our minds, who is Pharaoh? Who is Egypt? Who is it that God is going to rescue his people from by the slaughtering of the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world? Now, you might be inclined to say the Pharisees. Because the immediate context of John chapter 11 is that Jesus has just raised Lazarus and some people went to tell on Jesus and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and the Sanhedrin deliberated and said, okay, let's kill him. 
And now they've given this public order that if anyone knows where Jesus is, they have to report him, otherwise they're guilty of a crime too. So we might say, well, they're Pharaoh. They are Egypt. It's the Sanhedrin. It's the Jews. It's the Pharisees that are the objects of God's wrath here. And it's the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus intends to rescue. But if you thought that, you would be wrong. It's not actually the Pharisees. It's not actually the Sanhedrin that are Pharaoh, Egypt, in this anti-typical Passover. Rather, we might say it is the system of the universe in rebellion against God and the main players in it. If we had to put someone at the head of this system that is against God, who might we be inclined to put there? Satan. If we had to suggest that there are some followers of this figurehead, who might we say they are? Uh, demons, right? Demons, mankind, unregenerate mankind in rebellion against God, all of us by nature. If we had to say what the work is that we do in our slavery, what might we say it is? And if we thought about the prospects for doing this slave work under this hard taskmaster, where will it end up? Will we work our way to freedom? Will we build for ourselves the American dream? Or hell, right? Consider with me a few verses that are just, just samples, but I just want to let you know I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke. I'm not up here just being fanciful. This is the sort of language that the scripture uses when it talks about our salvation. In Romans 6 and verse 16, we read this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And it says, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here we have the introduction of this slavery language. But we also have, in this case, a personification of sin and obedience. So let's recognize that it is personification. There is nobody called sin, right? Or there is nobody called obedience. We don't obey obedience or disobey obedience. And so in, in, a, in a sense, it's not precise to say we obey sin or disobey sin. This is a personification, right? Whose will are we doing then when we obey sin, when we present ourselves as slaves to sin? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. 
Well, let me start with verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. While you were walking in them, what were you doing? Let's read verse 2. You were following the course of this world, in other words, doing what everyone else does, and you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So while you were presenting yourselves as slaves to sin, you were doing the will of Satan. Now, were you doing so against your own will? Or were you complicit in it? James 1.14 Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And Romans 6.23, and then I'm going to tie this all together. For the wages of sin is death. Okay, so here's the scenario. By nature, you were willingly presenting yourselves as slaves to sin. The work you were doing was sin. You were under Satan, who was basically your taskmaster. And what you were earning, the wages that you were getting for it, death. What you deserve because of it, death. Right? So this is, I'm just showing you that this is the kind of language that the scripture uses. Slavery language. Under the dominion of Satan language, right? So when we talk about Jesus being the anti-typical Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb, rescuing us from an Egypt of sorts, from a slavery of sorts, we're not being fanciful to say that we were in slavery to sin, that we were under the dominion of Satan, and that we were living in a way that was crushing us and would lead to our ultimate destruction. We are not being fanciful when we say that this is the way the scripture talks about it. And so this is what we need to understand is actually the case and was actually the case that Jesus, our ultimate Passover lamb, was rescuing us from our slavery to sin. That he was rescuing us from the dominion of Satan that he was taking us out of a scenario in which we would work and work and work ourselves to certain death and destruction and damnation and bringing us out from there into freedom. The scripture says that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious son. So, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, they're not the Pharaoh or the Egypt. It's Satan, sin, and hell. Now, who are the children of Israel in this anti-typical Passover, this ultimate Passover? Well, first, the children of Israel. John chapter 1 tells us, you remember this, he came unto his own. Jesus came for the house of Israel. Jesus came for the Jews. Jesus came to save the great, 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 great grandchildren of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All throughout the Old Testament, there are promises made to the biological descendants of those men. And Jesus came to bring those to fulfillment. Jesus came for the Jews. He came unto his own, 
It says his own received him not. But that's only a general statement that most rejected him. By and large, Jesus was rejected by the great, 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 great grandchildren of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's not an ultimate statement. It's not a literal statement that all, each and every one of his own received him not. Some did. There was Lazarus and Martha and Mary. There were 11 of the 12 disciples. Many did. You see that many Jews believed in their Messiah. When He came for them, they recognized Him. They put their faith in Him. And many today still do. God came to save the great-great-great-grandchildren of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Including, and listen to this, including Pharisees. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 5, we read about a deliberation of the Christians in Jerusalem. And it says this, Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, etc., etc. What they said is not our concern this morning. Listen, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees You see, some of them were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the Pharisees eventually recognized that the man who was crucified on Mount Zion was the Messiah. Some of them eventually recognized that as Jesus was crucified, God swallowed up death forever. Some of the Pharisees eventually recognized that when Jesus was crucified, it was the slaughter of the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And some of the Pharisees believed. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul says, as to the law, recounting his own history and his own background, as to the law, a Pharisee. This shows us the love of God. The grace of God. You see, Jesus, the Passover lamb, wasn't being slaughtered in order to overcome those who, in the very immediate context, were plotting to kill him. His enemies were not ultimately the Sanhedrin. Jesus was actually being slaughtered as the Passover lamb to save some of them. Some of them were essentially the children of Israel for whom the Passover lamb died, whose houses would eventually come to be marked with the blood of the lamb. Little did they know But this Jesus whom they planned to crucify was to be slain for them. In Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Paul observes, One will scarcely die, even for a righteous person. It's 
Not often you see someone lay down their life for someone else, even if that someone else is a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. You do see it sometimes. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We ought to see in the unworthiness of the Pharisees who were plotting to kill him. In God's persistent purpose to send Jesus to the cross to die even for them. We ought to see the love of God magnified. Chapter, pardon me, verse 10 of Romans 5 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. You see, God reconciled even some of these Jewish leaders though they were enemies of Christ, though they plotted to kill Christ, though they were sinners, Christ Jesus dared to die even for that. Christ Jesus reconciled them to God, brought them to God. This ought to magnify for us, to us, just how deep, just how wide is the love of God. The members of the Sanhedrin were not those in Pharaoh's palace. The members of the Sanhedrin were rather like those in Goshen. They were the beneficiaries of the death of the Passover lamb. They were among those for whom the Passover lamb died. as were the rest of the Jews. Jesus came to save them, to shed his blood for them, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For those who believe. And what does it say? For the Jew first. The children of Israel are the children of Israel. They are among those who were foreshadowed, signified in that first Passover. As a Passover lamb was slain for the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob then, so Roughly 2,000 years ago, a Passover lamb was slain for the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, wasn't slain merely for the Jews. What does Romans 1.16 say? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Even back in Exodus, even back in Exodus, some of the Egyptians took shelter behind the blood of the Lamb, it seems. We covered this in greater length in our evening 
sermon series through Exodus, but let me draw your attention back to Exodus 12, 37 and 38. As the people leave Egypt, this is what we read. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock or flocks and herds. You see, when the people of Israel left Egypt, it wasn't merely the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who went. Do you realize that there were Egyptians? This is the mixed multitude that went up with the people of Israel. Some said goodbye to Pharaoh and to Egypt. That world behind me, I'm going with the people of God. Some of them presumably had taken shelter after seeing the first nine plagues behind the blood of a Passover lamb. So we want to be among Yahweh's people. We are, we are done with the gods of Egypt. We're done with Pharaoh. We want to be numbered among the people of God. Jesus, the Passover lamb, was slain. Not only then for the Jews who will believe, but also for the Gentiles who will believe. In John chapter 1, it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But then what does it go on to say? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, many of the Jews believed. Most didn't. And God ordained that the gospel should go further afield then in an unprecedented way to the Gentiles. That whosoever of them believe should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever would receive him would become children of God, would be numbered among God's people. In fact, the scripture goes as far as to say that we actually become Jews. We Gentiles who believe become Israelites. This is as far as the scripture goes so far even to say that. Ephesians, again, in chapter 2. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, verse 11, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. That's ethnic Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, you were at that time then, next clause, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But then, what does it say in verse 13? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. To what? To all the things that you were previously far off from, including the commonwealth of Israel. Look again then in verse 
19 of Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, not foreigners to the commonwealth of Israel anymore, to God's people, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Romans 2 also touches this idea. Verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Says that's stating it negatively, the opposite way. You're actually not a true Jew if you are merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So those whose hearts have been circumcised by the Spirit are actually true Jews. Well, those who are ethnically Jewish, but whose hearts have not been circumcised by the Spirit, they are not actually the true Jews. Galatians 3.29 puts this probably more explicitly than anywhere else in the New Testament. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, there's always been within ethnic, biological uh, Israel a subset who will believe, a remnant the Old Testament calls them over and over again. These, the scripture puts forth to us as the true Jews, true Israel in the sense that they are the ones who will ultimately fully inherit the promises brought to fulfillment through Jesus Christ. The rest who will not believe, obviously, I'm not denying that they're not, they're obviously they still are ethnically and biologically Jewish. That's an obvious point. But in God's eyes, they're not really, really His people, really His chosen people. The New Testament then comes and says that we have been joined to true Israel by faith in Christ. So the amazing thing is that when God looks down on humanity and considers who is the true Israel, who will be the true heirs to my promises, he sees the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles together in one body. This is what Ephesians 2 is teaching us. This is what Galatians 3.29 is teaching us. This is what Romans 2 is teaching us. And so we, along with the believing Jews, are like those who lived in Goshen so long ago. The Passover lamb has been slain for us. And we have applied the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorposts of our homes, so to speak. As God visits judgment upon this world and passes through to strike down, Satan, sin, hell, and everyone that lines up on that team, God will pass over the homes of the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles who have applied to the doorposts of our homes the blood of the Lamb. 
That is, for whom, for whom Jesus is in the story. So we have seen when Jesus is in the story. We're right in the last week of his life, his earthly life. The Passover of the Jews is at hand. We've seen what Jesus is in the story, the Passover lamb. Where Jesus is in the story, therefore, in Jerusalem. And we've seen for whom Jesus is in the story. The believing Jews and Gentiles. The true Israel. Just as Satan, sin, and hell are the true Egypt. The true Pharaoh from whom we are rescued. The Passover mentioned in John eleven fifty five. in summary then, was a day destined for the slaughter of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John's understanding, and this is what he's intending to foreshadow and forecast as he says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The cross casts a shadow, so to speak, over the last half of John's Gospel. We have to read the rest of John's Gospel with the cross looming over us. It's at hand. Passover of, the Passover lamb will be slain. The day destined for the slaughter of the Passover lamb is fast approaching. This is what John means when he says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Let us be among true Israel. Let us be true Israelites who mark the doorposts of our homes with the blood of the Lamb, who trust in the Passover Lamb to rescue us from Satan, sin, and hell, the slavery that we are in by nature outside of Christ Jesus.